The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone from New York City. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Over the course of our history in broadcasting these programs, we have made very many forays into examining the relevance of archaeology to contemporary situations. Um, in light of the very tragic events in Charleston, South Carolina over the last week, we have brought together an expert on African archaeology, African-American archaeology, to look at what the connections are between the events and the tragic history of racism in this country and um, archaeological investigations and how they provide a perspective on what happened then and what happened now and what is happening now. My special guest today is Dr. Terry Weeks, who is a professor of anthropology at the University of South Carolina uh, and um, has a, a special interest in the exploration of the archaeology of the African diaspora, cultural origin, freedom-seeking initiatives, str struggles with inequalities and social identities, and in particular the study of ethnogenesis and linkages between indigenous people and African uh, with respect to tracking and developing sort of a continuity in uh, the discussion of the evolution of the human condition vis-a-vis -vis historic archaeology and its origins in Africa for the um, explanation of how the diaspora has emerged and what kind of issues we look at, not just in terms of a historic context, but in terms of also looking at the relevance of this background to understanding the events of the present. Thank you very much for joining us, Terry Week. So let's begin with uh, how you chose this particular line of uh, investigation and this particular perspective as you uh, went from, say, graduate school into a professional career. How did you get started? 
Well, I um, follow my personal interests. Um, I was interested in um, African-American identity, and um, I was always um, struck, you know, particularly as a person of African descent, you know, about the peculiar peculiarities of race and identity and, you know, why, you know, why is it such a big hang-up with people? And so I think in school, um, particularly as an undergraduate student, I started learning about, you know, the, the depth and breadth, you know, of race ideas around the world and how um, people of African descent uh, have a special relationship to these ideas and um, how they're quite useful in understanding, um, you know, contemporary experiences uh, if you understand that they have a history, right? They come from somewhere. It's not just that, you know, people are, are temporary insane or something. They would be nice if we, you know, it was that simple. But, you know, there there is a particular history to things. And um, it helps to uh, explain a lot when you can see patterns of human behavior over centuries. So that was part of it for me. Another part of it was... Uh, just uh, interested in human differences. I, have, I come from a diverse family, interracial family, and uh, but and also growing up uh, having friends from other places. Um, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, but I had friends from Puerto Rico and other places. So getting a taste of of other cultures and learning other la- you know learning language and things like that um, helped me to see that there's something wider and uh, something behind you know, all these rich differences um, that aren't always you know, just a source of angst and tension. They're also, from my perspective, they've always been something that was enriching to me you know, to mix and mingle with different types of people. So that's part of, how I, part of what guided me, you know, and, and it just everything developed organically as I was in school. Like I discovered, oh, I could actually study history and archaeology professionally. I was always interested in history, but then I discovered anthropology in school, and I was like, oh, I want to be out in the field, you know, studying these ideas so it went from there you know it's 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 quite amazing but um obviously with advances in scientific research um getting back to your original explanation of how you got interested in this um the lines of racial identity what with scientific advances in dna study those lines tend to be blurred and I think, hopefully, as, as we project further into the future, we will start to see that, obviously, there has been so much interbreeding, if you want to call it that, and so much blurring of these lines. And it continues to be so based on, on what we see uh, technically in terms of the scientific research. Let's go back, though, and deconstruct that a bit, because I think that's one of the issues that you wanted to raise. And, and let's talk about the genealogy of the race idea and how it affected your perspective and, and what you've come to realize as you've advanced in your studies of this issue. Yes. Um, well, um, in, as I started studying, you know, history and in, in intellectual histories, um, it was striking um, the various ways that not only um, intellectual ideas, but also, you know, more broad-based, just human ways of behaving uh, that include, you know, ethnocentrism and in some cases xenophobia and all how these things have been with human beings through much of recorded history. Um, and how um, those combined with not only you know academic or intellectual philosophies, but also religious beliefs such as you know polygenesis in the 19th century, and uh, folk notions of human difference to um, create this um, 
this explicit idea that we know of today of race, and it, but it pretty much gelled, you know, during the Enlightenment, clearly, in, in Europe, you know, what we today know as race, um, and clearly it varies from place to place around the world, but, you know, much of, of uh, what we know of in terms of, for instance, the idea of innate, inherited inferiority or superiority, which is, you know, part of the the essence of the idea of race, you know, comes from explicit uh, places in, you know, the writings of uh, philosophers. Um, clearly, there's also the notion of biological determinism, the view that groups of people have inherent physical traits that predispose them to their inferiority or superiority within, you know, a racial hierarchy. And then from that um, hierarchy, um, people fit in because of, innate, you know, intellectual and, and moral and even um, um, civic and other sorts of cultural behaviors um, and ways that um, race is also, a, you know, a form of, of human categorization where um, people are attempting to uh, differentiate people, you know, by population. So looking at these things, it, you start to gain an understanding of some of the nuances and how it's more than just a matter of one type of people is good, the other type of people is bad. You know, it's, it's built on a much deeper genealogy. Um, clearly, within the last couple decades, at least, um, there have been other ways of conceiving of this, this intellectual history, um, you know, processes and um, concepts of racialization, for instance, have been uh, a major part of uh, scholarship across disciplines. Racialization essentially is a process whereby um, racial meanings are assigned to material items, interactions, and peoples in ways that affect resource allocation and status. So this, these um, emerged from the writings of Omi and Wynant and others, and today are uh, one of the key uh, driving um, conceptual forces behind, you know, some of the archaeology that's being done on explicitly on race. Uh, clearly, there are, it's, race isn't just about biology either, right? You know, because um, as uh, scholars such as Philomena has said have demonstrated for Europe, you know, for the Netherlands, for instance, her case study of everyday racism there, um, cultural practices are often used, in a, you know, in addition or sometimes um, in, by themselves to marginalize people who do not fit, you know, a dominant kind of Eurocentric paradigm for um, status or for behavior in society. So we can see various ways that um, race speaks to, to human difference and um, how we can differentiate, you know, some of the older ideas which support, you know, ideas of human races versus the newer ideas where um, people are seeking to understand race as a social construct. You put your finger right on it as far as I, I'm concerned. I think it's just so difficult to break down these old paradigms. I mean, they have been so ingrained in, uh, certainly in Western thinking. And, and as the world becomes more globalized, you know, even though there's a lot of progressive thinking and there's a lot of deconstructing going on as well as reconstructing going on, there is still that, 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 uh, 
hangover, shall we say, of that Western model. And um, I guess that one of the issues that archaeology has to confront if you're dealing with issues like the diaspora and the search for identity is how do you get over that? And how do you start looking at these issues from a perspective that doesn't sort of focus on the Eurocentric model? And what I'd like to ask you as somebody who's doing contemporary archaeology in this vein and hopefully with models that are superseding this this almost primitive model as far as I can see, how do you get how do you do that? And where is uh, diaspora archaeology at this point? What kind of baselines are people using when they start to do their excavations and, and try to not only do the methodological operations, which most archaeologists know about, but certainly expand their interpretive perspectives on this kind of archaeology? I know it's a complicated question, and it is one that I want to bring back, but we are right up against a break. So let's just take a break for a minute, regroup, and we'll be right back with this very fascinating discussion on the archaeology of race right after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Dr. Terry Week is a professor of anthropology at the University of South Carolina. And today's discussion, which is couldn't be more timely, is about the archaeology of race and with a specific focus on the African diaspora. And his research has concentrated on um, 
African and African-American archaeology with, as far as I can see, a strong focus on the Caribbean. And um, I guess one of the discussions that we had leading up to this segment is the sort of overarching power of the Eurocentric model of uh, the structure of societies and how societies and, and, and racial groups, if we want to call them that, and we will for right now, how that sort of feeds into uh, these, these, uh, these developments that we've seen over the past, uh, certainly the one we've seen over the past week, and, and, and the uh, sort of ongoing problem of racism, and it's sort of factored into uh, really a, a Eurocentric perspective on the world. And I was asking uh, Terry over the break, how do we restructure our thinking and how do we look at archaeology of the diaspora in a sense that maybe strips away some of those uh, old constructs of Eurocentrism and brings a fresh perspective on it. So Terry, take it away, see what, what you can do with that. Sure. Um, first of all, we need to start at the stage of training of archaeologists and have them understand the history of their own discipline as uh, it relates to race ideas. And if we, because if we don't understand that, um, people won't get a sense of you know how it is that we can reach into the canon of archaeology and pull out what's useful, but also understand you know what kind of blinders um, are in place and um, for instance, you know, we have to look at, you know, mountain builders debates and we have to look at um, nationalist uses of archaeology, you know, within Nazi Germany. We, you know, we have to look at various um, ways that archaeology um, explicitly used race models and biological anthropologists and other sorts of anthropologists. Secondly, we need to look at um, some ways that the study of race has been kind of sidestepped. Um, for instance, um, there was a period in the 70s where race almost became a, a major um, place of, of discussion or concept for discussion, but it was uh, kind of sidestepped because people focused on ethnicity thinking that they got it. Um, and then I would say by the 80s, finally, people were saying in archaeology, uh, we need to make this an explicit uh, theoretical agenda within the World Archaeology Conference, within you know much of archaeological uh, practice, um, or in some parts of archaeological practice, and uh, particularly here in, in the Americas and in other places around the world. Um, and we can see how various people in the 90s and the, the 21st century, you know, are continuing to look at this from various perspectives, not even ones exclusive only to race. We, for instance, see Whitney Battle Batiste's work on uh, black feminist archaeology, where, you know, she's, like others, are exploring the idea of intersectionality, how race is a part of various forms of inequality, which all work together. So I would say, you know, in a nutshell, we have to understand, you know, where we've come from as archaeologists is part of the answer to that question. Um, another way to answer the question is to look at what have archaeologists actually done in the field and, um, in their theories and in their methods, you know, to address this issue. Um, we can look at a few case studies. Uh, for instance, uh, what have archaeologists done with respect to landscape theories? We can look at uh, Terence Everson's work using a, more of a critical race theory uh, to track the ways that laws subordinated enslaved people and, and the ways slaveholders exercise power over Africans and their built environment, even the, the very materials they could use to construct their homes or the layout and placement of their homes, you know, how... Um, 
racism took material form on plantations, and, we, and by extension, we could look at you know other works being done on colonial period Americas, how race became manifest in place and as space, right, as a an expression of a idea. Um, we can also look at um, issues such as segregation, you know, a specific theme within the archaeology of landscape and place, where we find uh, cemeteries. Uh, many people are familiar with the African burial ground. You know, why is it people were buried there as opposed to kind of buried alongside people of other uh, races, you know, as in the minds of people of the day? Um, my own, some of my own experiences are quite striking. Uh, for instance, I was part of a project um, with uh, like a mentor of mine, Leland Ferguson, who used to, he's an emeritus professor here at USC now, but he worked up in a place called Old Salem, up, up in what is today Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And um, he explored how over time cemeteries went from being kind of more integrated, you know, amongst the Moravian settlers and the enslaved folks who were there to a period, you know, by the 18th century of segregation, you know, where whites buried one part, blacks buried in another part. We can see this physically through the placement of graves. We can see, see it through maps. And one striking thing we also find is the issue of the physical erasure of uh, commemoration. I had an, a really weird experience where Dr. Ferguson and I were underneath the church, and we removed a gravestone marker that was taken off of an African's grave and placed un- not only underneath the church, but actually embedded within one of the piers of the church. So we see here how ideas about, you know, the separation of the races and, and about um, erasing the presence or acknowledgement of uh, people uh, who do not fit, you know, the superior or, or high status race, you know, um, go to work explicitly in the form of material culture and on landscapes. Um, another way of looking at this right now, I'm working on an edited volume on the issue of removal. And some people are familiar with uh, so-called Indian removal, uh, which is often pursued from the perspective of the 19th century because of the 1830s Indian Removal Act. However, you know, as far back as the, you know, 17th century, we find examples such as the Piscataway in Maryland who are going through a similar experience. And we see how over time, the subsequent settlements of their sites, they were being um, emplaced various ways by the colonial regimes who were trying to convince them to move here or move there. Uh, On one end, the colonists seeking to position them so that they don't become enemies. They don't want them too far. They don't want them too near. So we see the uh, archaeological site distributions uh, as we track them over time. Uh, We can see through the work of um, Julia King, and others, how um, colonists sought to move people around the landscape. And then um, some of my own research, such as my dissertation on a group known as the African Seminoles or Black Seminoles, how folks escaped from slavery and uh, ran to, to uh, 19th century Florida, allied with the Seminole Indians, or so-called Indians, indigenous Seminole people. And um, at a certain point in time, because of the Indian Removal Act, uh, the U.S. sent the military down there to move out Seminoles, and um, these uh, Africans with gates from slavery were taking refuge there, and uh, the town that I excavated was actually destroyed as a part of a U.S. military effort to enforce the Indian Removal Act. So we see explicit uh, evidence of destruction of this town, or even just the presence of a large African um, 
anti-slavery resistance village, you know, within a territory, you know, in the 19th century, which was kind of uh, unusual and unique, you know, for um, what was, you know, what's today the United States. Um, so those are examples um, from more of a, a landscape perspective. Another way to, of thinking about it is how archaeologists have looked at artifacts of race. And I can think of a couple of examples there. Um, let's just take the work of Paul Mullins, for instance, who has studied this issue in the 20th century, in 20th century in Indianapolis, where he was able to demonstrate using quite um, mundane, uh, quotidian artifacts such as milk bottle caps, nothing we would ever expect would speak, you know, much on this issue of race. But what Mullins found is that he was excavating uh, black communities there, African-American communities in Indianapolis, uh, that in the 20th century, and um, he found evidence for these milk caps. And um, one thing he noted was because he was also looking at oral histories, that these caps took on a significance for African-American people who were being interviewed, and they um, helped him understand how uh, these caps weren't just an uh, illustration of the fact that people drank milk, you know, but also how, um, for some people, these caps, these milk caps, were used as kind of like a ticket for admission to this local amusement park. Now, the mm-hmm. thing to understand about this situation is, and in Indianapolis during the early 20th century, black people were discriminated against and not allowed entrance into uh, this one amusement, local amusement park, except on specially assigned segregated days where they could enter. And, you know, according to, to the dominant um, label, these were colored frolic days, you know. But according to some African-American um, um, people who were interviewed who gave the oral histories, they would call these milk cap days because people of African descent could take their milk caps and use them as, as tickets for admission into this park. So mm. here's a, a, you know, a really uh, concrete and uh, mundane example, you know, and, and really unassuming, you know, artifact, right? And here's in the 20th century um, illustration, you know, of this right. issue. Um, well, that's true. I mean, look, I, there, there's no question that that uh, these are all critical elements in trying to understand uh, the, that type of segregation, and you know, for lack of a better term, uh, stratification. And and I think stratification, though, however, is something that almost transcends race because the Europeans did the same thing. I mean, in the feudal landscapes of. Uh, the middle middle aged Europe, mm-hmm. the serfs had their own territories around the mansion, around around the forts, and around the fortresses of of the landowners, and and th- these fiefdoms were very clearly demarcated. And your your point about landscape is is so spot on because I worked at the African American burial ground here in New York mm-hmm. City, and the basically all the blacks, the Africans themselves who many of them were first generation, just brought in by the slave transport. And the Jews uh, basically were buried in very similar landscapes, specifically marshlands, you know, places where uh, horse carcasses were dumped, where uh, minority people were dumped. It was sort of a collective dumping ground for essentially inferior people, Mm -hmm. or what were considered inferior people. 
So I guess the question that, that really I, I think that I'd, I'd like for you to answer and, and, and one of the things that I think is, is really so critical is where, where are uh, African-American archaeologists and, and even other archaeologists, where, what kind of theoretical frameworks are they starting to develop that are a little bit different? And, and, and how, how, how do you develop a research design that sort of starts to really deconstruct those old models and, and tries to look at a diaspora situation um, in, in a very fundamental uh, con in a construct. And, and the, the, the milk cap thing is clearly uh, a very well-refined one, but I assume there are others, and we'll get to that right after we take another break and uh, proceed with our very intriguing discussion on the archaeology of race, of race with Dr. Terry Week. We'll be right back after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back on Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. My guest today is Dr. Terry Wyke, who is Professor of Anthropology at the University of South Carolina at Columbia. And we've been talking about the emergence of schools of African diaspora archaeology and generally uh, broader questions dealing with the archaeology of race. Uh, I'm dating myself here, but when I first broke into archaeology, which was way back in the 70s, um, this was not a main focus of archaeological research. And 
I'm happy to say that certainly over the past two decades and most prominently over the last decade, the archaeology of race has uh, assumed a much more critical role in general archaeological theory and also in archaeological practice. And uh, Dr. Wyke is certainly one of the foremost practitioners in that venue. And I'd like to get, Terry, if I could, a perspective on intellectual and theoretical um, let's call them research perspectives on how to do this type of archaeology. I mean, we did talk about this a little earlier, but uh, are we seeing a school of, of, of sort of intersecting approaches, how sites are excavated, how, uh, how our paradigms are changing um, in, in sort of a more holistic sense rather than looking at individual examples of, of uh, what kinds of excavations are done? Where are we looking at the Aspera archaeology in sort of an overarching sense? In an overarching sense, um, I would say that um, the racialization paradigm is one of the key sort of theoretical um, perspectives on things that you know really focuses on processes of social constructions as well as the the uh, allocation of resources and so you know um, theories of power are becoming a lot more explicitly um, developed you know that look at ways of the, the ebb and flow the the um, give and takes the negotiations um, how it is that people who are subject to racist ideologies and you know, racialized practices um, negotiate those settings. That's an important part of things. Um, there are also um, ways that theories that are, are um, adaptable, if you will, um, are integrated into the conversation. Um, for instance, as I was suggesting before, um, People are starting to see the um, intersectionality, as it's called, you know, by um, Patricia Hill Collins and others who, from more of um, a feminist perspective, um, intersecting inequalities or, or modes of creating and perpetuating inequality, how all those things are connected and how race works with other forms of identity and power, you know, it's another key part of things. Um, recently, I've seen some conference papers that are bringing issues such as uh, embodiment into the conversation, and that's one area um, that I've developed in some of my own thinking. Um, uh, for instance, uh, people are looking at how uh, race um, directly impacts um, human experiences, human bodies, the um, subjective experiences of people, um, the way the uh, control of people over their own bodies or the bodies of other people, um, and um, the way that bodies, human bodies are appropriated. Um, I've done some um, writing on the issue of this um, as it pertains to an individual by the name of Osceola, who was a, you know, subject to... Mm -hmm. um, this issue, um, he was a Native American leader for the Seminole during uh, the Indian removal period in Florida, and you know he's part of these this Seminole and African alliance I was talking about earlier, uh, the Africans who escaped from slavery, and then the Seminoles who were engaged in a lot of different relations with Africans from slavery to tribute to, uh, taking to just more autonomous sort of situation for the Africans who were there. But Osceola was a leader who attempted... Uh, to overcome 
removal, and he was one of various factions of Seminole, but he uh, ended up uh, battling against the U.S. for a time and eventually captured, and he's currently buried here in South Carolina. A lot of interesting things going on in terms of the racialization of people in the low country of South Carolina these days, um, but um, yeah. he was buried in the 19th century, 1930s, 1940s, I think. Um, but in any case, um, he... Uh, his body was, uh, his grave was dug into during the 60s, and um, John Griffin of the National Park Service uh, was charged with excavating the grave, expecting it because of a looter attempting to, you know, desecrate the grave and digging into things. And um, so uh, basically one thing I was exploring is, you know, well, what was being said or done, you know, about past instances um, such as this, you know, how do people become wrapped up in this in terms of their physical being? And um, it's interesting looking at some of the past research, how, um, again, it brings us back to this intellectual history. Osceola, um, his grave was excavated because of this looting. Physical, or I should say biological anthropologists, uh, such as T. Dale Stewart at Smithsonian and, and a Reed of the Park Service, assessed the skeleton using um, the racing <coughs> paradigm, the old school racing paradigm, you know, of trying to assign a racial category. And, quote, they noted, you know, of Osceola's skeleton, quote, the femora are straight, unbowed with little torsion, and hence suggest the Negroid rather than the, than the Indian or Mongoloid type. You know, so it takes us back to... Um, how it is that people's physical bodies, you know, were categorized. Um, however, um, it was interesting as well is how their uh, analysis also showed that um, Osceola's um, head uh, was surgically removed, mm. and this matches up with oral histories and written histories that uh, Patricia Wickman and others have been exploring for a while. Um, so it suggests, you know, that um, he, to this day we don't know where his head is, but it, this clearly fits within, you know, the history of skull collecting, uh, whether done by Samuel Morton in the 1840s or by the U.S. Military Museum in the, you know, 1860s and up to the 1900s. You know, thousands of skulls um, were collected, and um, clearly this has implications for the development, you know, and, and maintenance of of the field of phrenology, which is a discredited racial pseudoscience today, but, you know, the right, pseudoscience right. of trying to find skull landmarks that talk about personality, intelligence, and all that, you know, we have to understand that these are not simply scientific sorts of activities. You know, there are political implications to dealing with human bodies, um, and this is an international sort of issue. Sarah Bartman, whose remains were returned, repatriated from France to her native South Africa, you know, in 2002 is another great example of this. So archaeologists, uh, in your, your own experiences with the African burial ground, you know, also um, suggest that people need to be clear on, you know, how we need to move the paradigm forward from one of simply identifying races to understanding that there are racial politics involved, you know, human remains need to be dealt with for African Americans, just like they need to be dealt with um, for other groups like Native Americans who of course, have yeah. explicit federal legislation which protects them. There is not such explicit federal legislation for people of African descent, even though, you know, one, some people might argue that generic laws, you know, do the trick, but so this is one area that I would say um, pulls together a lot of issues and shows some of the you know loose ends that remain to be dealt with. 
you know, as we move forward into the future. And, you know, clearly we can find other examples of this around the world. What else is interesting, though, is that sometimes it's easy to think of things in terms of uh, black and white as opposed to the gray areas. One thing I also found in some of my research is that it wasn't just Europeans who were attempting to use this uh, practice of phrenology to to support their claims. African-Americans, in a few cases, actually attempted to use phrenology to support intellectually their project of, you know, um, proving their humanity intellectually, right? Mm-hmm. So this right. might, uh, to some people, seem unusual because phrenology is a discredited social science, you know, uh, craniology, right? You know, a, a offshoot of craniology. Um, the bumps on the head. Exactly, you know, but it's all to suggest that, you know, again, back to the to the, the concept of appropriation, you're not, you know, everything isn't appropriated the same way, and sometimes words are appropriated by the very people they're meant to harm or dislocate or, or marginalize or denigrate. Um, and I think we find examples of this even in, in our modern society, you know, we, I won't say the word, but, you know, everybody, I think, knows what the N-word means if you're, if you're a, a citizen of the United States, right? And we don't tend to use that. However, there's been a lot of debates amongst um, African-American um, scholars and uh, over, you know, should people in general be using the N-word who are African descendants just because they want to or because they're a musical uh, performer, right? You know, there's contradictions at play. And how do we uh, work out those contradictions, you know? But, you know, one of my points here is that um, sometimes things don't always kind of work out in terms of the black and white. There are gray areas, there are contradictions, and we should embrace those those uh, as well. So I like the idea of appropriation, um, and I think it, you know, just like the old Marxist idea of, of contradiction, right, the appropriation, you know, from a political economic perspective, how um, people attempted to use, you know, ideas in, in um, various ways, right, Sure. So also I like to look at history um, and also note the fact that race um, as it's practiced today or in the past uh, was never a, uh, a given. You know, people in the past in antiquity did not think of the world as we do today. Um, you know, we can look at, uh, you know, archaeologists as Rudolf Virchow in the 19th century Europe, you know, was looking at the seeking out German origins in the Caucasus Mountains, right? Something that, you know, in the 20th century as, as Nazi archaeologists did the same thing. You know, they were promoting a, a genocide and Nordic superiority, but Virchow was interesting in the sense that, you, you know, even though he was a 19th century archaeologist looking at some similar issues, he was actually a vocal critic of the national, nationalist uses of archaeology for uh, uh, Aryan and Nordic superiority. Um, right. Right. projects. So I think sometimes if we re, we have to re-examine history also and note that um, I, you know, the, the kind of conflicts we have today weren't always, you know, they're not set in stone. They're not ways we have to behave as intellectuals or otherwise. Um, and this is a truly international project. We have to engage in this, but we have to understand how, you know, we understand race here in the United States, for instance. It's not going to be the same way that people in Latin America approach it as archaeologists or Europe or various parts of the world where archaeologists are exploring race. No question. And, and I think, as, as I think we had talked about earlier, DNA has revolutionized this entire concept of race. And uh, eventually, I think, we will see how significant this 
uh, I don't know, I would call it almost modification, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. we have mixed and matched and gone here and gone there. And uh, a lot of people sort of tend to get offended. They say, well, I can't have that kind of blood. Well, you know what? You do. And uh, I think that ultimately that may be one of the positive redeeming elements of these arguments when people start to understand that that really are we race or is what is race and and and, and at what point do you, do you uh, demarcate and what point do you start to look at it in a much more holistic sense and in right. a way that says hey wait a minute we're all in this together and again that's a, a topic for a different day we're going to be right back with Dr. Terry Wyke after these words with our last segment in the program don't go away Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our final segment of today's episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And we are dealing with, in a very timely sense, the archaeology of race. And, and Terry Wyke is uh, a leading figure in uh, the archaeology of the African diaspora. And over the break, we were discussing that 
the fact that much progress has in fact been made in looking at the archaeology of race, the constructs of race, genealogy of the race idea, and uh, sort of breaking down how these perspectives and how in fact racism um, sort of gets perpetuated by some of the constructs that are sort of founded in in Eurocentric perspective on the way the world works, which as many of us are starting to appreciate is not a sole model for trying to understand the operationalization of of how the world really does function. Um, And and I I put put this to you, Terry, how do we sort of take the insights that many leading scholars have uncovered and have attempted to synthesize over the past decade plus, and how do we express that message and deliver that message into the broader society? And the events of the past week have certainly catapulted that significance into the forefront in ways that unfortunately should never be done again. But how how do we spread the word and how do we communicate uh, given the fact that social media is now sort of uh, going bananas or viral, as people want to say, uh, how do we do that? Yeah, that's a great question, a rather complex question. Um, sometimes I think uh, we need to hire a public relations firm or you know marketing firm or something like that's that, true. advertising yeah. folks, you know, because that is their science, right? Um, it is. They're skillful at it, unfortunately, mm-hmm. or fortunately, from your depending on your perspective. Um, but yeah, I think just being present. Um, as uh, or being available um, as uh, publicly engaged um, scholars and uh, archaeologists, practitioners of archaeology, is one of the first steps. Being open, even though you know um, it might not, uh, depending on our um, task list for the day, you know, or depending on um, you know what our um, academic requirements are in terms of teaching research and service or, you know, how many, you know, CRM projects we have to complete for the week, you know, depending on, you know, which uh, segment of archaeological practice we uh, come from or that we're grounded in, you know, will help us answer that question. But we have to make it a priority, one, as archaeologists to be available to the public because they are interested. Um, and um, that's, I think, the first thing is intent and availability. Um, another thing is to think about how it is that archaeological materials enter into public view. Uh, and clearly, as you mentioned, you know, social media and um, the Internet, you know, are important parts of this. Um, but, you know, we also have to look at the history of things. So during the 1980s, as a part of the World Archaeological Conference's uh, publications, uh, Michael Blakey, well-known biological anthropologist, published a piece that was a critique of museums back then. Museums continued to exist and be important places where, you know, more general uh, public audiences, non-academic public audiences, encounter archaeological remains and interpretations of archaeological material, culture, and sites. So we have to make sure we are available, we are present, we are aware, uh, we uh, are commenting, you know, in, in publicly accessible ways, you know, on uh, museums. And, you know, I think museums are moving, you know, clearly have moved, you know, since Blakey's critique in the 80s beyond, you know, exclusionary practices and uh, the silences on um, certain groups of people, you know, that are part of how, you know, racism works, you know, by 
just completely ignoring or erasing the presence of certain types of people. Um, we also um, have to be looking at how it is, you know, in places like maybe uh, Colonial Williamsburg or maybe archaeological sites like Carter Grove, how, um, how it is that archaeological sites are being interpreted by people who are interpreters, not even just archaeologists themselves, but other people who, uh, whose job it is to present to the public, you know, archaeological sites and reconstructions of archaeological, um, how archaeological material fits into, you know, historical behavior. Maria Franklin made a critique, for instance, of Carter Grove in the past and talked about how there were certain sorts of inappropriate sorts of um, uh, ways of materializing, you know, the kind of social context. For instance, uh, watermelon rinds thrown around, the, you know, enslaved Quarters at, at Quarters Grove, you know, clearly an inappropriate, stereotypical use of of um, available, you know, materials to try to talk about the past, you know. But we have to be aware of these historical critiques and use them as we transform our uh, mediums, you know, or transform into different media, transform message into different media. Uh, there, there is a uh, one way that. Uh, Archaeologists have taken advantage of the digital age. Ed Gonzalez, Tenant Gonzalez's work on the town of Rosewood, again, another Florida instance of racism, where we have a town in the 1920s called Rosewood, which was basically eliminated by a racist mob who ran through the town and engaged in gun battles with African-American residents and eventually leveled the town, killed many people, lynched people, um, and today, uh, archaeologists are attempting to, you know, tell the story of Rosewood, but not just, you know, in the traditional ways, but in digital ways using, um, on the Internet, you know, virtual reconstructions, you know, 3D reconstructions of Rosewood. And this is particularly important because, um, you know, in, for instance, when I was a graduate student in Florida during the... Uh, the 1990s, there were survivors of Rosewood who were paid millions of dollars in restitution by the state of Florida. Huh? And um, there was research into Rosewood at the time, a historical commission to study this, but interestingly, archaeologists were not on the uh, docket of uh, experts who were called to testify or to investigate Rosewood. In fact, the uh, uh, this is kind of... Um, um, Something I learned from some people who were taking part, not necessarily the director of the project, the historical research, but you know, they weren't even fully aware of the people doing historical research of the ways that archaeologists operate in terms of, you know, contacting landowners to get access to land and things like that, you know. So this is to suggest that um, we have to be at the table, you know, when incidents such as this are explored, you know, that have contemporary significance on which are being addressed by, you know, states, you know, or addressed at the state and the federal level. Um, so in any case, this is an example of how there are some archaeologists who are using, you know, some of the digital technologies we have today and um, getting the message out. So I would suggest we have to continue to uh, update our uh, skills, as they say, just like people do in other disciplines. Right. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and quite frankly, without knowing the details of this, I would say, based on my experience, that's our fault. 
because we don't do these things. We don't realize that we have this message to impart, and we have to be a little bit pushy about it. Um, I right. think we have to. We, we can't just wait for an invitation. We have right. to sort of say, you know what? We have a lot to offer here because we look at these things from a material cultural point of view, and in many cases, there's no cloudiness involved here. There are there is a material cultural record that in many cases is not really uh, is incontrovertible, and uh, the interpretations clearly can 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 factor into a variety of different types of uh, perspectives. There's no question about that. But certainly, when it comes to looking at the material cultural record and looking at distributions of activities on the ground. This is what we do, and this is something that no one else does. So I think, you know, with with these this last couple of minutes that we have, I would uh, really want to thank you, Terry Wyke, for uh, for your uh, very insightful perspectives at this very delicate time in race relations, is especially where you live. And yeah, um, yeah. And, you're welcome. Uh, and I, I'm so thankful for this program, and I am so thankful that you have given us some new insights. And I think all of us as archaeologists, if you're out there listening, we have to take the bull by the horns every once in a while and just sort of insert ourselves into the picture, because what we do does certainly have a major relevance to the, uh, to the human condition, if you will. And so thanks so much, Terry. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. And we will be looking for your new book, and we will be looking for your further contributions to the field. And uh, for the rest of you out there, we will have another installment of our program next week. And the past, again, as I have emphasized on numerous occasions, is a key to the future, nowhere more so than in this particular episode. So good evening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.